Welcome to this episode of the Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness Project's podcast. We appreciate you joining us and hope you enjoy. We're going to jump right into what is part two of a three-part interview. Uh, so if you haven't heard the first part, I would recommend that you may want to go back and check that out before going any further with this one. If you're enjoying the content the Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness Project is bringing you, Please make sure to subscribe, share, and review. Thank you. The, the, the wonderful thing about historical fiction, and at least the way that I approach it, is I try very hard not to get into you know exposition where you're just saying, oh, remember this and this and this that happened on these years. People don't talk that way. Right. We don't we don't sit around and go, well, you remember what happened in 2011 and then 2012 and two. No, we talk about you remember this thing happened and then this thing happened next and that affected us this way. Um, and uh, so my characters uh, refer to things that happened, you know, for us historically, that's their own personal history, their own personal past uh, that, that has affected them in one way or another. You know, my, in the siege, I have a soldier, uh, an old soldier uh, who talks about his experience uh, under Colonel Washington uh, during the French and Indian War, uh, talking about how, uh, you know, how Washington's, um, um, his reputation was sort of uh, cemented uh, by his actions in the French and Indian War, which, uh, by the way, Washington accidentally started that war. I don't know if you're from, uh, Oh, I didn't realize that. That's that's actually yeah, interesting. Yeah, he, I um yeah. I, I, as we've been sitting here talking, I've been thinking uh, back into my family history. I don't remember when oh. it was. It might have been related to the French and Indian War, but I can't say for sure. I'd have to. I'm really bad with with genealogy and, and family history. That's that. <laughs> My mom does is into that and and other members of the family, but it's not my strong suit, not my interest. Um, but I know I actually had an ancestor that um, tried to assassinate George Washington at one point. Oh wow! So, <laughs> I think it might have been during was the that, that... War. Okay, I was going to say that that would be that would be unusual for him to be a target of assassination at that time. Obviously, once he became president. The um, you, know, you get into uh, some of the uh, resentment that that happened in the early republic against the taxes, the whiskey <laughs> rebellion, and so forth. There was there was a lot more uh, a lot more folks who were targeting Washington at that point. Yeah, I I want to say that it was I, I I feel certain it was before the revolution. Okay. Um, so that's why I'm saying yeah. it might have been the French and Indian War. I, I want to say it might have been sur- related to a, a dispute when he was a surveyor as well. Um, okay. So, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with that history. So, oh, I didn't I, expect I would you would study. Be. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and and getting to getting to um, bring in some of these stories um, that sort of set the stage and and explain why was Washington held in such high regard? Well, there was good reason for it. Uh, he was he was appointed leader of the Continental Army for really good reasons. Uh, it wasn't just because he was tall, and it wasn't just because he, uh, you know, 
uh, sat astride a white horse or whatever, it was because he was a magnificent leader. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that was remembered from the French and Indian War when he was fighting for the British, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it's, it's getting to bring that information in through the personal stories of my characters um, helps to uh, make it more real. Uh, you know, the reason that I sat down and started writing historical fiction was because I was a reader of historical fiction. Okay. Like most people, like most people, I disliked reading history because it's boring. It's this date, this number of people did this thing in this place. Now on this next date, these people did this thing on this place. Who cares? Tell me the stories. Tell me the stories of those people. Why did they do those things? Why did it matter to them so much that they were willing to put their lives on the line? Um, why did it matter to them uh, so much that they were willing to leave everything that they that they loved behind? Um, that's that's to me what's important about history. I'm I, you will very rarely find a date of any kind in any of my books um, because it's not the way that it's not it's not the way that that we experience our own lives, our own history. We don't we don't sit down and say, well, on September twelfth, uh, nineteen twenty two. Uh, my grandmother was, no, who cares? Now, September 12th, 2001, yes, we're going to remember that um, or, or some of it. <laughs> but, you know, just, just like when somebody first heard the Declaration of Independence being read, they would remember that. You know, when, when the bell rings in, in the center of the town square and there's a guy standing on the courtyard, you know, on the court steps, shouting out this, this declaration of, oh, my gosh, we've actually, we've done it. We've declared independence from Britain. That's a memorable event. So that makes it into my books. Um, the exact date on which that happened, not so important. Yeah. So how do you develop your characters? I mean, obviously you're working with a historical background um, and doing a lot of research because <laughs> um, I, I yeah. know you want to make things historically accurate. Um, so how do you go about meshing, uh, creating the characters and, and meshing that with the real history? As I said, I, I've read a lot of journals and and you know personal letters and so forth of people who lived at that time uh, to try to develop an understanding of how they saw the world, um, and then I try to reflect that in in you know how they behave in the pages of my books. Um, I'm also a uh, lifelong student of of just human nature, um, you know, observing how how people uh, develop the beliefs that they act upon and that they that they um, are willing to, uh, you know, stake their lives on. Um, so that's that's something that uh, I bring into my into my books. Um, and you know, it's going to sound a little bit schizophrenic, but um, when I when I am writing, uh, it, there comes a point in the story where the characters simply take over. Uh, and at that point, what's left for me to do as an author is to hang on tight and write down what they do. Uh, and I, I very often have the experience of having a character who does something that I didn't expect and I didn't, I didn't intend for them to do. And it winds up changing the story for the better. Uh, once, I, once I can start telling that character's story, I, I almost don't have any work left to do. I just, I just write it down, <laughs> you know. Um, I've my, heard other authors and, say something similar. So that, that doesn't sound crazy to me at all. 
<laughs> well, you know, uh, authors are are a uh, we're we're not we're not any kind of, of magical being, but we are certainly a little bit odd. Uh, you know, true, and true. That, that's been my experience of, of most of the authors I've known. Is that you know we're all we're all a little bit of an odd crew. Um, you know, the the thing that um, what what I also sometimes do though is I do find. You know, I, I had a character in my very first book that I wrote uh, who was a wonderful character. Uh, it wasn't somebody I had really intended to focus on. Um, he was an historical figure, a very minor historical figure, but he was an historical figure. So I had a name, I had some background on him um, and he made his way onto the stage in the book. And then he kind of shouldered his way to the front of the stage and said, no, you're gonna tell some of my story. Uh, and he was, he was a great character, I loved him. And then I started writing another book, The Wind actually, and um, there was a character in that one who started behaving the same way and it turned out to be very much, he had a lot of the same sort of attitudes and so forth. So I killed him. Because uh, I said, you know, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna just tell the same story over and over again. So I killed him. Um, and, I, and what was interesting was that the act of his murder changed the entire arc of that story. It changed the way that that story unfolded in some really wonderful and powerful ways. Um, and that wouldn't have happened without my interfering in the character's you know, decisions and so forth. Um, but what it did do was it, it highlighted that, that sort of tension between letting the characters do what they want and then reaching in as an author and, and you know, making them dance. <laughs> so, but you know, once I killed him, I let the rest of my characters react and respond to that according to what was natural for them. Uh-huh. That's yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um I I haven't had anything published yet, but um I, I am a writer. Um hope to to do some publishing here in the next next little while and, and I, I study the craft a little bit and, right. and that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so. I, I actually I try very hard not to study craft. Um and this is going to sound conceited, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I sit down and I write, mm-hmm. and I am terrified that if I study what I'm doing, I'm going to lose that magic where I just sit down and I write, because uh, I'm going to get I'm going to get stuck thinking about how I'm writing and, and you know how how to craft it and how to you know do the three act blah blah blah. Uh, no, I, just let me sit down and write. Let let my let my characters do their thing. Um, and I'll, I'll write it down. Um, you know, there, there is a, there are two major schools of thought in how you approach writing. One is you plot everything out and then you just write it down. And the other is, uh, um, you're a discovery writer. You, you, mm-hmm. write, you set your characters in motion and you, you discover what they're going to do. And I'm very much the discovery writer. I'm, I'm very much, you know, writing into the dark as some people call it or pantsing, yep. you know, writing by the seats of my, seat of my pants. Um, that, that's very much my style. Um, I did try to sit down and uh, and plot out a book one time. Uh, that was the Friedman. Uh, and um, the so I write during uh, National Novel Writing Month. Um, mm-hmm. So 30 days, November. Um, I sit down November for actually the night of Halloween at midnight. I sit down and I start writing. Um, and so my agreement with my wife is that she is a widow once a month, one one time a year, <laughs> one month out of the year. Because when I'm writing, you know, I'm uh, this year. This year wasn't too bad. 
Um, but most years, um, you know, when I'm writing, uh, you know, I, I finish up cooking dinner and, and getting everybody off to bed. And then I sit down and I write and I might be up till two or three in the morning. Um, so I'm not good for anything else that entire month. <laughs> my, uh, my employer is very patient with me in November, uh, you know, my day job, uh, very patient with me in November, but, uh, you know, I, I do my best to give, to give them good value. But once I'm done doing that, I'm not good for anything else. Uh, so November, my wife's a, a widow and she kind of accepts that. I had, okay. I came across this story that was just absolutely compelling to me a few years ago um, at the beginning of the year. And I said, you know, what I, what I came across was a news story about a, a the mayor, uh, former mayor of Greenville, North Carolina, who was doing some genealogy and discovered that he had an ancestor who had fought in the revolution for the Americans as a former slave. And I said, holy cow, that's a story I've got to tell. So I said, okay, I, I, this is, I'm, I'm on fire for this right now. I'm going to sit down and write down, I'm going to write, I'm going to, I'm going to write down the plot of this story. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Three chapters later, I realized that I was in deep trouble with my wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I ended up writing the Freedman uh, during the course of that year uh, instead of in the course of November. Um, so that one's, that one was kind of out of, out of band, out of, uh, I wasn't really supposed to be writing that one. Um, it's, I think in many ways, it's one of my finest books. Um, it was a complete failure at plotting uh, because once the characters uh, started speaking to me, which they did basically on page one, um, I, I had a story and I had to tell it. Um, and what was really interesting about that, you know, I, after I published it, um, I was doing some publicity for it and uh, I had somebody make a comment that, uh, you know, I had no business telling this story. It's not my story to tell. And what was really interesting was as I was doing my genealogy, I discovered that um, I actually had an ancestor, uh, you know, that I did one of these, um, uh, one of these genetic tests, DNA <laughs> tests, things. And I, I had found that I had an ancestor who had come from uh, IAD uh, in about 1780 or so. Um, and the DNA showed that that ancestor probably originated in West Africa. So despite the power of my skin, it turns out that it probably was at least in part my story to tell. Um, and uh, you know, my other answer to that is that this, these stories have been sitting around for 200 plus years and nobody's told them yet. Um, better that somebody tell them, even if, even if it's an imperfect telling, even if it doesn't have all of the, uh, all of the understanding and background, better that somebody tell one of those stories and encourages others to tell the story too. I yeah. mean, if somebody else, if somebody else wants to write there, there are, you know, there were, I think, 40,000 free black men or free black people in, in the United States at the time of the revolution. That's 40,000 stories, friends. Absolutely. <laughs> let's, let's tell some more of them. There are a lot of them to tell, and I will boost the living hell out of those because I want to read those stories. I want to hear those stories. I want to hear the stories of all of these people. 
uh, you know, there, there were about three and a half million people in what is now the United States at the time of the revolution, uh, all told. Um, and that, that's, there are a lot of just fantastic stories to tell there. And very, very few of those stories made it into the history books and every one of them is worth hearing. Absolutely. So yeah, you answered a couple more of my questions there. I was gonna ask, how do you do everything? Because there are so many things that you you do that you enjoy um, from from the clock making or restoring and and fiddling, um, so many different things. I, I was wondering how you fit it all in. So um, NaNoWriMo uh, as your focus for when you do your writing, that totally makes sense. Um, yep. But I also understand, and, and, and I write poetry as well as prose. Um, so maybe I'm going to use the terminology a little bit differently than you do. But um, for me, when my muse visits, when my muse strikes, that's when I need to do my writing. Um, and that's when it's some of the, the best writing that I do. Um, so yep. I, I understand you can't always schedule that. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, because I do write within the constraints of the National Novel Writing Month, I do kind of have to schedule it. So, you know, some some nights yeah. I come up here and that's those are the nights that I sit up here until three in the morning because the muse isn't coming and I've still got to get my words in. So, you know, uh, the, the the thing that they say as, you know, in, in encouraging people uh, in the National Novel Writing Month is that you cannot edit a blank page. So if I if I write you know, 1700 crappy words in a night, I can edit those. I cannot edit the blank page that those words occupy. Um, so I would much rather sit down and write, you know, the 1700 words or 2000 words in a night and have to go back and, and rework them heavily than uh, not write. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, a, a lot of writers say that they have to write every day um, or, or, you know, they get, they get mentally constipated or whatever. And I don't have that experience um, because I, I have now, I've done this for 13 years um, where I sit down, you know, Halloween night and I start writing. And so that's, that's kind of my, my comfortable cycle. And the rest of the year I spend on editing and marketing and, you know, uh, doing all of the, the business side. Um, and, you know, there are, there are times when I sit down and I get a wild hair and I just start writing. Um, I have a, a couple of books that I've written, or a couple of novellas that I've written uh, under a pen name that I won't uh, I won't reveal uh, because they are a completely separate project. Um, sure. They are um, they're uh, I'll, I'll just call it Gonzo science fiction, uh, and it's very much off brand for for my historical fiction. Uh, where where with my historical fiction, I really strive to get absolutely everything right that I possibly can. Um, with the Gonzo sci-fi, I'm just like. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get the parts right that I know about. And, I, and because I do have a fairly broad base of knowledge, I, I do get a lot right. But there's stuff where I just go, no, I'm making that up. <laughs> I don't care if it I don't care if it violates the laws of physics. I'm making it up. <laughs> well, I imagine that um, I would guess in a way uh, a good release for you and uh, maybe even cathartic. It, it's um, it's it's activating and using maybe a different part of your brain and of your creativity than you use for your regular writing. Yep. So I think that's probably beneficial for you. Yep. 
my, my one rule on writing those is I do absolutely no research. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually literally write them. Um, I, I participate in the uh, Oregon Star Party, which is mm -hmm. a major gathering of, of astronomers uh, up in Central Oregon. And it is as off-grid as you can get. It's out in the middle of, of the Ochoco National Forest. Uh, you literally, you, I, I cannot get any kind of connectivity out there at all. Um, there are a few people who've, who've gone to extraordinary measures and, and have a little bit of, you know, they can get a, a message out if they need to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I sit up there with absolutely no access to the internet. All I have is the contents of my head and, and maybe a couple of friends around me. And, uh, and I sit down and I write. And so I'm, I'm literally sitting at a card table in the back of, of a U-Haul trailer, writing my heart out, you know, a few hundred, three, a few thousand words a day. Uh, and you know, at the end of the week, I've got a novella that that uh, you know is uh, just a, a good romp. It's it's a, a completely unhinged romp in uh, science fiction. <laughs> that that's neat. Um, I have a few other friends that go to the Oregon Star Party. I, I hear it is a a really good time. Oh, it's amazing. Um, the 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 reason that we do it in the location, and I also serve on the board there, so. Uh, I, I know a fair amount about it and I've been going for, for over 20 years now. Um, but the reason we do it where we do it is because um, if you look at a, a um, satellite image of the United States uh, taken at night, um, you'll notice that almost the entire country is covered in light uh, from cities. One of the very darkest places on that satellite image is in Eastern Oregon and Central Oregon. Um, and so when you get out there, you can literally walk by the light of the Milky Way. Once your eyes get adapted to the darkness, the Milky Way is enough light for you to be able to see the road and, and walk up and down it uh, at night. Uh, and that is, that is an experience that just never fails to absolutely blow my mind. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a fairly advanced amateur astronomer. I've got uh, a number of telescopes, uh, rather too many. Um, but, um, you know, I, I go up there and I'm able to see stuff up there that I never see anywhere else. Um, I'm able to, to, um, uh, get at, uh, dim objects in the sky that you just, you can't see otherwise. Um, and, you know, the stuff that's bright is, uh, easier and clearer to see. Uh, you know, you, you point your telescope at, uh, at something like Jupiter or Mars, and it, it feels like you're shining a laser out through the back of your skull when you look into the eyepiece uh, because it, it just, it's so bright. And, uh, you know, once, and we, we do it at new moon. Uh, so um, we, uh, we have as little moon as possible, but once you do get a little sliver of the moon, that's, you know, that's basically gonna be the last thing you're gonna look at that night because your, your night vision is gonna be completely destroyed. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've never been to the Oregon Star Party, but I've been out to Eastern Oregon a few times for for rafting and, and camping and things like that, and it, it is absolutely beautiful. And I think that people who don't experience the nighttime sky without all the light pollution that we have in the cities and things, they're missing out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, just with the naked eye, um, sitting in a chair, looking up at the sky there in Ochoco National Forest, um, you, can, you can get a sense of, you know, again, this, this goes back to my uh, interest in history and my interest in human experience across history. 
you can get a sense of what our farthest ancestors saw, um, you know, uh, as they as they rested from the day's work um, and looked up at the sky. And you can get a sense of, of why uh, people developed a lot of, of uh, um, beliefs about the sky because it is it is so magnificent to see uh, and it is it is so inexplicable uh, to uh, to a mind that, that hasn't been exposed to all of our modern understanding and that's not to say that we understand everything at all uh, we, there are many 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 great questions still to be answered yeah. um, and you know, we, we live we live in an era where not only do we have access to all of this information, but there's new information being generated at a rate that we cannot possibly keep up with. And that is amazing. And people, people talk about, um, you know, historical uh, people, historical figures being uh, wealthy uh, and, uh, and how fortunate they were and so forth. And we talk about richest crisis and, and, uh, and so forth. Crisis, didn't have access to the, the total sum of human knowledge at his fingertips. He only knew what, what he could learn from the few people that he had around him and perhaps a few books. Um, and anybody who has a smartphone has access to the sum total of human knowledge. And the fact that we live in a time when that is possible not only possible, but every day uh, is uh, to me that we are we are wealthy. We're literally wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice of the people who came before us. Um, you know, I think about I think about somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who amassed the largest library in America, and I think he he would have been blown away by the opportunity to literally pull a device out of his pocket and ask it any question that he had and get a reasonably good answer back. And if he didn't believe that answer, he could research it and look into why did it give me that answer and where did that information come from and get down to the, the primary sources, the people who actually looked at this stuff and learned it and how they learned it and, and can I reproduce that? And, and the, the fact that we, we are awash in so much information, so much good information. Yes, there's a lot of bad information out there. I absolutely agree with that. But that's where we have to learn how to be critical thinkers and to not just accept things at face value, but actually dig down to our primary sources and learn how to evaluate the, the credentials of those primary sources and the believability of those primary sources, the uh, motivations of those primary sources. You know, if I, if I read a scientist is, uh, you know, looking at um, a, you know, we've got a, a thing in the news right now. They've found a signal from Proxima Centauri that they think, you know, it, it looks like if it's actually from Proxima Centauri, it's very likely of intelligent origin. Actually, what, what I saw somebody say was, it's definitely of intelligent origin. The question is, is it Proxima Centauri or is it here? <laughs> so <clears throat> yeah, that makes looking sense. at that, looking at that, we can say, okay, well, let me see the research paper. Well, that's available. We can go. We can go. We can look up that paper. We can read what they what they found. Um, we can read their reasoning. You know, when when they when we had this recent news about the um, 
the uh, gases that were found in the atmosphere of Venus. Um, I, I went and I downloaded that paper and I read it. And it, you know, some of it's thick, some of it's not easy to read. Sure. But you can you can download it and read it. And 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 you know, if you don't understand something, you can go look it up and learn about it. Um, and you know, being able to get at those primary sources and then look at, okay, why did these people pursue this line of research? What motivated them? Was it because they believed something and they wanted to prove it? Or was it because they were asking questions and they came across this this interesting piece of data and then tried to understand what that data meant? And if you can, once you get down to that question, then you can start to assess how believable that is. You know, if I have, if I'm reading something written by somebody who's been talking about aliens for his entire career with no proof, and then all of a sudden he has this paper that says, oh, I've proved it, I'm going to be a lot more skeptical of his work than I am of the guy or gal who says, I found this really strange thing and I can't explain it. One possible explanation is, you know, some sort of extraterrestrial life form. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm ruling out every other possible explanation. And this is what I'm coming up with. That, that to me is more rigorous and believable. And that, that skill of learning how to assess the, the credibility of information, I think that's probably the most uh, critical skill for anybody to learn in this uh, age of just you know, information from, again, the sum total of human experience and, and knowledge. Um, being able to figure out what parts of that information are useful and, and believable is, uh, that to me is, there is no more important skill. How do we teach that? Because a lot of people don't have that. That's thing. a great question. We see that on the time. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a terrific question. Um, and I, I don't know that I have an, uh, an instant answer. I would, I would have to really think about that a lot. And I think a lot of people are um, trying to approach that question and trying to understand how we how we uh, solve that problem, uh, because you know obviously um, we're seeing that play out in many ways uh, today. Uh, you know, everything from how do we respond to a global pandemic uh, to you know who do we believe in in a news story? Mm -hmm. um, that that stuff is is. Um, it has real-world consequences. It has um, it has very real um, costs if we get it wrong, and it has very real benefits if we get it right. Uh, so I think it's really really important uh, to develop that skill. And, and I don't have an answer for you as to how we develop it, unfortunately. Okay, um, no problem. So uh, one thing that I really appreciate that you've you've done. Um, and I can tell that education is something that's really important to you um, from our discussion that we've had so far today, um, as well as just browsing your website. Um, one thing I really appreciate that you've done is you've actually gone through and written up um, um, like d discussion guides for educational use for for those who are you know teachers or homeschooling for them to be able to use and and uh, use with their students. Yep. So I, I imagine that um, took some work for you to do. Yeah, uh, you know, one thing that I that I do offer with every single one of my books is if you're an educator of any kind um, and you want to assess the use of my books uh, in, in education, um, 
drop me a line and I'll get you one. I'll send you a copy. Um, and I would prefer that it be an electronic copy just because that doesn't cost me as much. But sure. um, you know, if you're an educator and you, and you really uh, are interested in, in uh, looking at how these books can help um, educate kids into our national origins, then I absolutely want you to have a copy of as many of them as you want uh, so that you can assess them. Um, and you know, writing those discussion guides, um, I'm, I'm not a huge uh, fan of uh, reading literature and then writing a book report. Uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's, yes, it can help you understand what's happening in a book, but it's also taking some of the joy out of it. Um, but I also recognize that um, putting things in context is uh, critical to understanding uh, you know, what, what happened in a book. So you know, when you read about the siege of Yorktown, um, understanding the context that is outside the scope of that book, outside the scope of that novel or the history that you're reading um, is really important. So that's, that's where those uh, discussion guides and, and uh, you know, discussion questions uh, are designed to uh, help branch out beyond what's just in the pages of the book. To encourage people, you know, I've, I've had a number of people who've read my books and have said, you know, I never really looked into this before, but now I'm going and I'm researching it and I'm learning about it. And, and uh, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't read this book. And that's, that's what I'm after. <laughs> I imagine that's really gratifying. I, I love, yeah, I, I love having somebody say, I was never really interested in this before I read your book and now I'm fascinated. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I'm done. Totally. <laughs> Um, so I, I should have done this at the beginning, but let's do it now, and we'll do it again at the end. If I remember, I apologize if I don't, because my memory is horrible. But if someone does want to know more about your books or get in touch with you, um, how do they do that? So uh, the best place to do that is my website, which is just LarsDHHeadbore.com. And that's uh, LarsDHHeadbore, just like you see on my on my book title there, on my book uh, uh, cover. Um so there's, there's no A in my last name. <laughs> a lot of people want to put an A or two in there, uh, and there just isn't one. Um, but uh, that's, that's the best place to reach me. Um, I'm also very active on Facebook. Um, I have an active uh, author page on Facebook. Um, and then on Twitter, I, uh, I have a daily tweet uh, about what happened on this date in the American Revolution. Um, and so I tweet that a few times a day, uh, most days. Um, so, you know, I, I try to provide a, a little bit of value there uh, without having too much in the way of sales on, on Twitter. Um, and, but, you know, if, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm, I'm there also. Um, okay, great. But, uh, yeah, those, those are the best places to reach me. And, of course, you can find my books, uh, you know, at Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com and so forth. Um, I also do sell my books directly. Um, and if somebody uh, is uh, is really wanting to make sure that I make as much money as possible from my books, which of course is in my interest also, uh, uh, buying them from me directly is the best way to do that. Um, and uh, if you're buying physical books, uh, I can also make sure that I get that signed for you.